Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This is the archive episode where I will be sharing my previous work on the show. There's not too much of it since season three is uh, relatively recent, I guess five years old now, but uh, I have an essay I wrote at the time and also a clip from a video essay. Now at that point, and I'll give proper warning before the transition, uh, after I've shared that archive work, we're going to start to shift our attention to parts three and four. I'm going to play the first minute of that episode. Now, I think based on audio alone, you're not going to be able to figure out that much of what's happening. But still, if you want to keep it fresh, you can stop there, watch parts three and four first, and then uh, go into the podcast coverage of that. But for those who like a little teaser, for the many who will be listening to this who have seen the whole series, that's how I like to end each week of episodes. Looking forward to the next one. So first, before we get there, here's my archive work on parts one and two, written when I myself didn't know what was coming next. Here are highlights from my past work on the show. First of all, in 2017, after every episode, and in this case, the two episodes were aired together, uh, as mentioned already, I actually wrote up my response that night, put it out on my site, and uh, here's what I wrote on that night in 2017 for parts one and two. High in the skyline of New York City, ignoring the blinking lights of Manhattan to focus his attention on a box within the room, a young man waits patiently for something to happen. The box is some cross between a sophisticated scientific experiment, characterized by advanced technology, and a magician's crystal ball, closer to a crystal cube, summoning presences from beyond. He's been told to expect an apparition inside this framed glass, and has even learned that Others witness this visitation themselves, while refusing to pass along any details. Perhaps the vision must be experienced personally to be understood, when something appears, pacing inside the frame like a prowling lion before leaping violently toward the screen, the watcher releases a loud yelp and jumps from his seat. It is happening again. Unfortunately, no cute, curious girl arrives with a tray full of coffee to keep him company. She's my favorite new character so far. I hope she's okay, though. That's an awful lot of blood. On the other hand, he can count his blessings. The fantastic, ferocious specter does not escape its cage. Or does it? Remaining physically trapped within its frame, it nonetheless insinuates itself in his, or why continue this conceit, my imagination. As I watched the premiere of Twin Peaks The Return in a friend's Brooklyn apartment, the image of a character gazing at and recording his experience of gazing at a giant glass box, not a television in his case, but some sort of teleportation device, certainly felt like a bit of a funhouse reflection. And I would imagine others, watching in places more geographically distanced from Manhattan than me, could also taste the resonance. It would be difficult to imagine a scenario, urban, high-tech, sci-fi, further away from any preconceptions we might have had about Twin Peaks going in. Yet somehow... It perfectly encapsulates the experience of watching it. Also, three years later in 2020, I did a Journey Through Twin Peaks episode, chapter 36, The Return, and it was split into different parts on different parts of the show. And one of these was focused on part one and two. It's called The Anti-Pilot. So here is a clip. The original series was immediately anchored in three elements. Murdered teenager Laura Palmer, the small town of Twin Peaks, and visiting detective FBI special agent Dale Cooper. This time, all three are present, but separated from one another. Laura is a spiritual figure, a guide for Cooper, although that role apparently comes to a violent end in part two. Just as many old episodes would ignore her before ending on her image, so we begin with her image this time. 
telling us that somehow it's all rooted in the one. The town, shorn of both Cooper and Laura for the first time, exists only in glimpses, non-sequitur sketches that, initially at least, don't coalesce into anything coherent. Is that mother's hat? Less an anchor than a buoy floating in the distance. As for Cooper, he is split not only from Laura, the town, and eventually even the Red Room, he's split from himself. Or his shadow. Or antithesis. Or, well, whatever you want to call the double who, after decades of anticipation, finally emerges as a character in his own right. And that's it for my coverage of parts one and two. Uh, here is a clip from the first minute of parts three and four. So part three, obviously. I forgot to mention before, of course, I do the description of what we see after playing the audio from the scene. It will get a little spoilery there for those of you who haven't watched the episode yet. Uh, so keep that in mind. And here we go with part three. We open with a strange and familiar sight. While the soundtrack kicks in immediately, the image takes about two seconds to fully fade up, revealing Cooper's bleary, blurred form, his white skin practically glowing with luminescence, his hands popping as if they are gloved, while his black suit is almost lost in the inky black behind him, distinguished in outline only occasionally by intersection with the white stars. He's well-groomed, his hair is slicked in place, and even his suit jacket is buttoned over the white shirt and dark tie, but he's out of control, arms outstretched, his hesitant but not horrified expression never changing, as his overall form refuses to stay still. The camera's lens appears to be shaking too, as is the pinpoint starfield behind Cooper. There is no fixed frame of reference. But we have a sense of static objects, or even flat planes representing these objects, being moved back and forth against each other, rather than of any internal movement on their part. There's a two-dimensional collage quality to this picture. After about six seconds, we cut to an angle behind Cooper, who takes up about the same amount of space within the frame, but is now facing toward what we're seeing, the same streaky starfield stretching infinitely in either direction, or at least as infinite as we can get with everything so constantly moving. Other sources of light do emerge, at least from off-screen, as Cooper's back becomes illuminated at one point. Three seconds into the shot, we cut into a closer view behind him of his arm and his hand, and briefly his head, for about a second. We may not even notice because everything is going so fast, before we return to a medium-wide shot from behind. 
There's another momentary illumination on his back, and at some point, we may notice that the watch on his left wrist makes it look as if his hand has been severed, hanging by only a small bit of flesh, which is in fact the white dial of the watch. A few seconds pass, and we're given our first close-up, Cooper's head bobbing in the frame so aggressively that at times it appears stretched out, at others squashed, or at least that's how it looks on reviewing when we can pause for a moment. This is a hard sequence to recapture in detail without losing the impression of watching it in a constant flow. The face pulls closer to us, becomes more abstract, filling the frame, keeping his eyes as much a focal point as the movement allows. Back to the behind shot, not 20 seconds into our opening minute, more flashes of light on his back, although they seem more fleeting, just a couple seconds before cutting to what appears to be our first point of view shot, just the whirring star field, without his presence in the frame, so it's impossible to call this a close-up, a medium shot, or wide, there's no central object to focus on. Return to Cooper's extreme close-up, his eyes jogging all over the screen, but usually remaining within it, and then 25 seconds in, something totally different. What appears to be a static frame, filled with a beautiful purplish-pink hue, diffuse wisps of mist or smoke as a backdrop to a more concentrated ball of the same such substance, expanding and unfurling while remaining quasi-spherical, filling the frame, but more because it's growing than because we are getting closer. Still, a return to Cooper's close-up, not quite as extreme as the last time we saw his face, does create the impression that Cooper is moving toward whatever this is. And indeed, as the close-up becomes more extreme again, his eyes filling the frame, his skin tone becoming purplish, pinkish, or fuchsia, or some mixture of the tones, distinctly different from the bright tan color it was before, we feel as if he is being enveloped by this new space. Returning to the view of the expansive violet mist and smoke ball, the idea that this is a point-of-view shot, what Cooper himself is staring at, becomes even stronger thanks to the cutting. Now the lighter-colored, thicker-substance smoke ball expands to fill most of the frame, and we're back to Cooper's close-up one last time. First his eyes as the focus, then a cut so that the shot is more fixed on his lips. Back to his eyes as the blue tones in his image become more pronounced, and the image itself dissolves into the smoke ball. No longer a ball in our view, just a mass of thick, bubbling substance that fills the frame completely. His eyes and the smoke are superimposed atop one another, disappearing into a frenetic montage of close-up abstractions, textures difficult to describe, and it seems we can move no closer toward the smoky substance, which is already enveloping us. A hard cut to a truly static image, in a purplish tone streaked with some areas of greater luminosity and others of brooding shadow, creating the impression of a blocky construction, some sort of stone, a wall made up of big, thick panels or cubes, broken up in the center top half by a depression, a sort of balcony with walls on either side, some kind of rail, and a dark shape on its left which suggests a passage to an interior space behind the balcony. After about four seconds of this still picture, Cooper's small form, dwarfed by the scope of even this one area, drops straight out of the top center of the frame and lands under the rail or behind the front of the walled balcony so that we can no longer see him. Lingering on the image for another six seconds, reinforcing how little his intrusion has affected its solidity or scale, we cut to a vast body of water under an overcast sky, all purple as well, some light cast upon the surface of the sea, allowing us to see the rippling of its waves, providing the only thread of scale or texture to give us some mooring in this alien environment. After about six seconds, another shot, with the impression it's a reverse angle, back to this balcony area, but now gazing up from below, 
so that the perspective lines slant toward the top of the frame, which is lost in shadow. This is a vast structure overlooking this water, and that is all we know as our minute comes to an end. So it's funny, I thought before writing down my description of this, uh, this is going to be one of the shortest ones because there's so little tangible kind of physical reality to describe, but somehow the abstraction uh, was even harder to describe, so it ended up being one of the longer ones. I hope it was uh, somewhat interesting to listen to and see in your mind's eye. I tried. So that's it for our preview. Tomorrow on the 5th anniversary of when parts three and four officially aired on Showtime, although I will note they were streamed at the same time that parts one and two aired. So shake your anniversary in this case, but that will be going up on that anniversary tomorrow. And uh, also uh, in that episode, I'll be introducing it. I'll be talking about the uh, feel and the structure of the episode about Laura Palmer's place within it. And, uh, all of the things that I usually talk about in the first episode where I'm kicking off the week. So we'll see you then. And uh, until then, you can become a patron uh, at patreon.com slash lost in the movies. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to help other people see this. And if you have feedback, also send it my way. Uh, although these are recorded ahead of time, both you know the original content, some of which was recorded back several years ago, to the stuff that I'm adding more recently. Even with all of that, I'll go back in and add feedback that I get uh, if people have thoughts on these particular episodes. Just I uh, do ask, um, keep spoilers out of it for now, if you can. So uh, particularly if you're seeing it for the first time, I'd love to know what you're thinking of the show as you're watching it. Uh, and if you haven't seen it before, maybe some reflections of your memories of watching it. You can also send me, of course, feedback that does get spoilery. I just, I won't share them on this podcast. I may share them on my Patreon podcast or elsewhere. Maybe when I do spoiler episodes, if I, if I have a sort of follow-up addendum to these. With all that in mind, let's look forward to parts three and four tomorrow.